first Bible reading this morning comes from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at by all those who have believed. This includes you because you have believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second reading this morning comes from the book of Luke, Luke 16, verse, from verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go to from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. Nice to see you all this morning. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, uh, you've joined us week three of a five-part series on eschatology study. And so, week one, we looked at the return of Christ. Remember, it was certain, personal, unmissable, unpredictable, and divisive. Uh, last week, we looked at living in the end times, walking carefully. Uh, worshipping corporately and witnessing courageously. Next week, we are looking at the, the resurrection hope, these glorious resurrection bodies and rewards of heaven. The final week, the joys of heaven, how glorious heaven is going to be. Today, we'll look at a heavy topic of judgment and hell. Uh, we say every week in our creed these words, He, Jesus, is coming again. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. We say that in our creed. But I think that's the line of the creed that we are most uncomfortable with. We love to say, born of the Virgin Mary and even suffered under Pontius Pilate. We're happy to talk about Jesus turning water to wine or walking on water. We're even happy to talk about how he was crucified and raised from the dead. And we're even okay to say he's coming again. But that word judge and that concept of judgment, I think, is something that we feel uncomfortable with. Let me say up front, this is not a comfortable sermon this morning. It's not comfortable to preach. It's not comfortable to listen to. If you're visiting us this morning, let me encourage you that not every sermon is like this. <laughs> but we do have to talk about difficult topics. As someone said, hard preaching produces soft hearts. And that is right. The occasional hard sermon, it does produce soft hearts. We, we do love Jesus more. As someone said to me this week, Paul, make sure that you have some humor and keep it light. I'm not sure I can on a topic like judgment and hell. Let me say a few things. Uh, I hope my tone is right this morning. When Jesus talked about hell, his tone was one of compassion. I hope that's my tone this morning. Uh, secondly, this is not an academic sermon, not just an academic sermon, because I can't preach this sermon without thinking about people that I know and love who do not follow Christ. It's emotional, not just academic. And lastly, this is not just a sermon for the unbeliever. Because when Jesus talked about hell, he talked predominantly to disciples to warn them and to encourage them to keep living for Jesus. Let's start with the reality of judgment, the reality of judgment. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14.10, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. See that word, all? Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every unbeliever will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's no human being who's ever lived who will not stand before God. And judgment is a good thing, isn't it? 
Don't you long for justice in this world? Deep down, don't you long for a day where all wrongs will be put right? You might have heard of a, a gymnast called Rachel Dell Hollander. She's one of those US gymnasts that was horrifically abused by her coach, Larry Nasser. In the trial, she faced her abuser. And she said this, incredible words. She said, the Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on people like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. But that's what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of your guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God himself, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Isn't that extraordinary? And she is right. We, we do long for justice. We long for every wrong to be righted. We long for every abuser to be brought to justice. We long for the corruption and the heinous behavior in this world to be judged justly. All this, the stuff that's been done against us, we long for that to be put right, don't we? And all the stuff that you've done against others, we kind of tremble at that. We cry out for justice. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept, said God's people, because they were being crushed and wrongly treated. And they're crying out for justice, not, not for vengeance and not for revenge. They're calling on God to judge justly. And we get that. We long for a, a, a judge who will be righteous and good and true. I don't know what you think of when you think of Judgment Day. I hope you don't think of this, this massive throne with a faceless judge and, and this long line of tiny, scared people waiting to face him. And, and this, this judge who is faceless looking for every reason to condemn you and to shout, failed, failed, failed hell. It's almost like we create this, this picture of a God as a monster who's this cosmic executioner. That is not what the Bible says. Look at Acts 17 on the screen. For he, that's God the Father, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Now, who is going to be the judge? By the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to all people by raising this man, Jesus Christ, from the dead. So who's your judge? the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 10, verse 42, Peter said, Christ commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Or this beautiful verse from Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That is the Lord Jesus. And with justice he judges. So who is your judge? Who is on the throne he is not faceless. 
He's not nameless. He has a name. His name is Jesus. And what was the heart of Jesus? The Lord Jesus Christ, his heart was one of compassion and kindness and mercy and grace, slow to anger, slow to anger and abounding in love, not wanting anyone to perish. See, our judge is righteous. Our, our judge is good and holy and true. And so his judgment will be spot on. Yes? I don't like the idea of judgment, but, but I, I do long for it. Remember the story that, that Jesus told about the, the parable of the, the wheat and the weeds. And, and these weeds were growing amongst the wheat and they were strangling the wheat. And it's almost like we want to say, yank out the weeds now. And that's how we feel in this, in this world. If you have been wronged, you want to cry out, justice now. But in this story that Jesus told, he says, no, no, there's going to be a harvest. And at the harvest, then the wheat will be bundled up for the barns and the weeds will be burned. But that's then, not now. Why do you have to wait? Because, because sometimes the wheat and the weeds are, are indistinguishable. I always say there's going to be a few shocks in heaven. People you didn't think were there are going to be there, and people you thought were going to be there are not going to be there. And the other problem is that the wheat and the weeds are so intertwined now, if you yank out the weeds now, sometimes you put up the wheat as well. And I know that we cry out for justice now, but Jesus says, no, wait. Trust me, wait. There will be a judgment day, and that is good. And for those who believe in Jesus, those who put their trust in Jesus, you are safe, you are secure, you do have eternal life. But the opposite is also true. Those who do not trust in Jesus, those who deny Jesus, they are not safe. And the place that they're heading for is called hell. We don't often say the H word in church. There was an 18th century preacher called Jonathan Edwards who regularly preached on hell. The sermon's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's so explicit. He talks about God holding humanity over a pit of fire and God's wrath being like a great flood. He says, if the angry God that held you in his hand let you go, you would perish in a moment. And it sounds horrific, that kind of preaching. And, and yet, God used that kind of preaching to bring the great awakening. In fact, every revival across history has been bold, courageous preaching on this topic. And yet, the Christians didn't like Edwards preaching on this topic. And Edwards said this, If there is really a hell of such dreadful and never-ending torment as is supposed, in which multitudes are in great danger, why, why is it not proper for those of us who have the care of souls to make great pains to make people aware of it? Is it uncomfortable? Of course it is. Should we talk about it? Of course we should. Let's talk about hell. On the one hand, we could just do an intellectual sermon talking about God's wrath and God's punishment. But on the other hand, there's people I know and love who are not, gonna, who are not trusting in Jesus yet. And you put those two together, and it's emotional, isn't it? It's so emotive. It's not an issue that we should enjoy talking about. And I guess that's why we don't. A survey in the UK shows 60% of self-described Christians don't believe in hell. 
many sympathize with a guy called Bert, uh, Bertrand Russell who said this, the fact that Jesus believed in hell was a moral blemish on an otherwise noble character. And so what happens in church today is you, you go one of two directions. You either become a universalist, a universalist which will say, well, all people are going to be saved and hell doesn't exist. Or you become an annihilationist, which basically says that all people will cease to exist, so it doesn't really matter anyway. Universalism, hell doesn't exist. Annihilationism, people won't exist, so it doesn't really matter. But that's not what the Bible says. The atheist Charles Darwin looked at the Bible and said, this is an atheist, Charles Darwin, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of Scripture shows that people who do not believe will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Let's look at hell, the horrors of hell. When Jesus spoke about hell, he resorted to images, to picture language. And I think that's because it is so horrific that, that words can't quite describe it. I've thought about sharing this. I do want to share this. But when I was 16, I, I witnessed something that was so horrific. It is etched in my memory. It is deeply painful, and I can't really describe it. And I'll be honest, it was my father attempted suicide, and I found him. Now, words can't describe what I saw that day, but I, I could use picture language. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He uses pictures of, of unquenchable fire, gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. Unquenchable fire. Mark 9, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell where the fire never goes out. Same in verse 48, the fire is not quenched. So Jesus depicts hell as his place where the fire burns continually. Now, now, fire in the Bible is always an image of God's presence. So think about Exodus 3, Moses and the burning bush, where, where Moses meets with God, it's in a fire. Or, or, or Leviticus 10, when Aaron's two sons disobey God, fire comes out from the presence of God to consume them. Isaiah 66, it says this, the Lord is coming with fire. So fire is a symbol of God's presence. And Jesus picks that up and says, that's what hell is going to be like. A place where the fire is never quenched, it never goes out. So God is continually, eternally present, pouring out his wrath. Now imagine if, if I light a fire now. If I light a fire now, that fire will go out, yes? The only way for a fire not to go out is if someone's constantly there next to it with a match or with a blowtorch. And that's the pitch of hell. Hell is not the absence of God. That's how our world likes to see it. Oh, I can party in hell because God is not there. No, God is there. God is there. His holy presence in hell pouring out his wrath. That's horrific, isn't it? The second image is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Jesus tells this story. Someone asked Jesus, Lord, are there only a few who are going to be saved? He said, make every effort to enter the narrow gate because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. He will answer, I don't know you. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you. But he will say, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. So some left outside and Jesus will say, away from me. And, and those people are weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And that is not anger and it's not remorse. It's a picture of pain, a picture of torment and wailing. Again, that's horrific. Shut out. And so weeping and wailing. The third image is a picture of darkness, outer darkness. Uh, Jesus tells us of that banquet where a man is thrown out and he says his hands and his feet are bound, he's powerless and he's cast out into the outer darkness. And again, darkness in the Bible is a picture of, of God's wrath or God's anger. And so he's, he's cut off from everything good. He's cut off from light. He's cut off from joy. And Jesus said, that is hell. Without God's love and without God's goodness. Now those three images, fire, gnashing of teeth, darkness, they are not just told us so we can write essays or write poems about hell. We're supposed to be appalled by it, shocked by it. So it drives us to do something. I just wonder whether we have watered down hell. Most unbelievers don't believe in hell because they think they can just party forever in the absence of God. Most believers don't really believe in hell. They find it just a bit of a scaremongery. But who is that person right now that you know and love who is not yet heading to heaven? And church, we must hear these warnings because Jesus spoke to disciples to warn them, are you okay? Please don't sit here this morning and say, I'm okay because I come to church, I love church, I love community, I read my Bible. Are you trusting in Jesus? That is the only way to be confident of heaven, the only way to avoid hell. Not your own goodness, not your own achievements, but in the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. So hell is horrific. What's it going to be like? As I say, over the past 50 years, there's been a massive shift towards annihilationism. I understand that. All my family, my, my grandparents, my father, every aunt, every uncle, they've all died without Christ. I would love annihilation to be true. I'd love that. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus used three metaphors to grapple with each of these punishment, destruction, rejection. Punishment, this concept that we're given resurrection bodies and some will spend eternity in torment. That is barbaric, but it's what the Bible teaches. That story that the rich man and Lazarus. In this life, Lazarus begged and had sores, but then he, when he dies, he goes to Abraham's bosom. He's in peace. 
He's rejoicing. Uh, But the rich man who treated him so badly, who lived for self, when he dies, he goes to hell. They both die, but go to two two different places. And Jesus said in, in Luke 16, 26, there's a chasm, a fixed chasm between one place and the other so that no one can cross from one place to the other. So these deaths are fixed, they're permanent. There is no such thing as, as purgatory, where if you end up in hell, you can work your way up to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. And before you say, how can he be in heaven when he sees someone in hell, the Bible never says that. The Bible says that the rich man in hell can see Lazarus, but it does not say that Lazarus can see the rich man. What is hell like? Verse 23, in hell where he was in torment. Verse 24, I'm in agony in the fire. Verse 28, let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. I think that the text is very clear. Torment. Now, is Jesus just messing with us? Is Jesus just playing with us and just using these scaremongering tactics? If that what he's trying to do, I don't think that would be loving of Jesus. That, that's kind of sadistic, isn't it? He's just trying to lovingly warn us. Matthew 25, they will go to eternal punishment. Here's an interesting thing. So we live in a world of contrast, you know, black, white, rich, poor, old, young. What is the opposite of eternal life? And we want to say eternal death. But that's not what the Bible says. Eternal life or eternal condemnation. That's the words that's used. And before you say to me, well, I like to think of hell as, you know, condemnation but limited and fixed. Maybe that word eternal could mean limited and fixed. If you want to argue that, you're basically arguing that heaven is limited and fixed time as well. So the Bible does say that for those who do not believe in Jesus, it is eternal punishment as hard as I find that personally. The second is destruction. This is the metaphor that's used in the wheat and the weeds, where the weed is pulled up and destroyed. Well, Jesus said that you should fear the one who can destroy your, both your body and soul in hell. What does that word destroy mean? It does not mean cease to exist. In Luke 15, Jesus told a story about the parable of the, the younger son. Remember that, where the younger son took his dad's money and squandered all his money and, and had, had a wild life living it up. And the words that is used to describe the younger son there is the, the, the word destroyed. The younger son was destroyed. Now that's interesting. Because he hasn't been destroyed. He, he still exists. He hasn't ceased to exist, but he's just not living the good life that he could live. He's living out of a relationship with his father. He's living away from his father's love. That's what the word destroyed means that these people are not going to live a life in a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father as they were created to be. They will still exist, but out of relationship. The third is the word rejection. 
Those who don't know Christ are said to be rejected, thrown outside, excluded. Lord, Lord, we did this in your name. And Jesus says, Matthew 7, I never knew you. Away from me, away from me. Or that chilling passage in 2 Thessalonians 1 that Steve read first. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. This is hell. Instead of experiencing God's love and God's grace and God's goodness and God's kindness, they experience wrath and pain and punishment. And it's a theme throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve were rejected from the garden, but they still existed but out of relationship. God's people were sent into exile. They still existed out of relationship. Think about the cross. We look at the cross and we often say, wrongly, we often say that Jesus was separated from his father. You ever heard people say that? It's not true. As though there was suddenly father and spirit, but no son in the Trinity. He was always in relationship with his father, but on the cross as Jesus died, as the wrath of God was satisfied, the father turned his face away. So for the first time in all eternity, rather than experience the love of his father and the goodness of his father, he experienced the wrath and punishment of his father, and he did that for you. So this is hell. Not the absence of God, but the presence of God. But no love and no goodness and no kindness and no compassion, the things that you often take for granted. One way to put it like this. Hell is the irrevocable and everlasting torment due to the presence of the holy God pouring out his wrath. All people will spend eternity in the presence of God. God will be the hell of the one and the heaven of the other. I know this is not comfortable. This is not my normal, joyful, upbeat, praise God kind of sermon. But that's okay occasionally, isn't it? Now, please don't hear this today and think I don't like it. We might not like it. You've got to ask yourself, is this true? And if this is true, then doesn't that put the fire in your belly for those who are walking around this world, around this suburb, around this city, oblivious to the fact that without Christ, this is where they're heading? Now let's personalise it. The people you know and love in your own life who are on this freeway, they're charging down this freeway, heading towards this, this horrible place. And you sit here, and I sit here, and I know the love of God, and I know the grace of God, and I know the kindness of God, and I know all this. And yet for some perverse reason, I have this lack of courage in sharing my faith with them. You ever had that? I've just spent three weeks in the UK with a mother and a brother and a sister and cousins who don't know Christ. And I already talked about Jesus. Why was that? If this is true, shouldn't we be bold? Of course, of course we're gracious and of course we're kind, but don't shy away from sharing your faith. You don't have to talk about hell all the time, but talk about the grace of God and the kindness of God and the love of God and how much he has done for you. And if, like me, you are a bit reserved about that, that we, we run courses here called Alpha or Christian Explorer. That's, that's an easy invite. Come to church, have a nice meal, and let's talk about Jesus. 
If you've never done Alpha, come along to our Come See Invite Night on the 15th. Just get a taste of it. But surely we must talk more about how glorious our Lord Jesus Christ is. Spurgeon says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Powerful statement for the Prince of Preachers. So church, this is true. And that's what makes the, the hope of the gospel all the more glorious, doesn't it? I don't know, maybe you have just grown cold to how wonderful Jesus is. Maybe week after week you come here and you sing songs about Jesus, but it doesn't fill your heart with gratitude and with joy. You say, oh yeah, he did that for me. What he's done for you is rescue you from hell. What he's done for you is spared you from eternal punishment. What he's done for you is to ensure that for all eternity you have a loving relationship with God. And when you grasp that, your heart is filled with great joy and great gratitude. But your heart must ache. It must ache for those who don't yet know Christ. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the question for us is, are you ready? What's a term we do, what's called an invitation moment, where we invite people to Give their lives to Christ again. Today is that day. You might say it's a very strange day to an invitation. <laughs> I wouldn't invite anyone to church this morning. <laughs> but it's a good day, isn't it? Maybe you're here and you know that your heart has grown cold to Jesus. Today's a wonderful day just to recommit your lives to Jesus and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Maybe you are here this morning and you actually realize that you are heading towards hell and you want to find out more about Jesus, well, tick that box that says, I want to do the Explore course. Or maybe you, as you listen this morning, you actually realize that you want to give your lives to Christ. I'm going to pray, pray in a moment to do that. So grab out your invitation cards. We're all going to fill those in this morning. And I'm going to pray this prayer. It's really a prayer that says, thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us from hell. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you are kind, gracious, compassionate, and yet you are righteous and holy and true. Father, we long for justice. We long for justice in this world, and we long for end-time justice. Father, we acknowledge that we don't deserve your love, but we're so thankful for our Lord Jesus, for his sacrifice, his compassion, his grace. That means we stand here today fully forgiven and fully assured of that place with you in heaven. We pray now for those we know and love who don't yet know Christ. And I beg of you, Spirit of God, would you give us boldness in shining Christ and speaking of Christ? Would you give us the courage 
to talk about how great our Lord Jesus is. And we beg of you, Lord, to have kindness and compassion on these people so that they too will have eternal life. Father, for those who are thinking right now of their need for Jesus, we pray today will be a day where they recommit right here, right now, they recommit their lives to you. And if there are any here this morning who, for the first time, recognize their need of Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you you come into their hearts, come into their minds right now, would you assure them in the Lord Jesus Christ they are fully loved and fully forgiven? And may this day be the beginning of their new life in Christ. And we ask all this for Jesus' sake.